And a welcome back here to Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora inside of the Cafe Kubal Studios, hanging out with you where sports truly meets that thing called life. And we appreciate you being here with us every Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Eastern Time. This week, we are going to give you an extra day. As yesterday, we started off the week with an awesome feature with Brian and Stratton, women's basketball, Brian and Stratton College of Syracuse, women's basketball head coach Tay Baker, speaking with me beyond basketball, beyond the court, a real talk on life and uh, so many things that uh, could be better in America. So having the conversation about many, many different things, I would implore all of you to go back and watch that video with Tay to start off this week about how America has been, where it is, and where we hope it can go. So a lot of a lot of wonderful things said from uh, somebody I care about dearly. So check that Bobcat Buzz special out with Tay Baker. And all this week, all the way through Saturday, not Friday, Saturday, we're going to go an extended day on uh, March 11th, 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Eastern time each day. I have the opportunity of joining you here from Greensboro, which is right behind me here in the skyline. And we're having some fun down here at the ACC tournament. I'll be covering 15 schools in five days, Syracuse included. And no matter what happens with Syracuse, as we have done for many, many years on the show, we have tourney time talk with Syracuse Orange men's basketball alumni. And they'll be joining me all week long no matter what happens with the Syracuse Orange. So hopefully good news for Syracuse as they continue on. No matter what, we'll be able to have the conversation because true Syracuse fans support the team win or lose, and true fans in general do that. So with that being said, I am so elated, as always, to have Dennis Duvall here on the show with me, Syracuse Orange men's basketball alum, a friend of mine, and somebody who has spent many years here on the show. So it's always my honor and my privilege to have him here with me. Dennis, how are you doing today? Come on, Dan. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. And, and like I said off the air, Dennis, you know, when I put that you were coming on the show on, on Facebook at Wake Up Call DT, Twitter at Call DT, and Instagram at Wake Up Call underscore DT, I got messages last night and early this morning that said two words, sweet D. So <laughs> what are your thoughts on the fact that people don't forget that Dennis Duval will always be sweet D? I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. Uh, when you get to my age, the fact that people remember you uh, in a positive way, uh, I'm good with that. As long as they're SU fans and uh, they appreciate SU basketball, that's what I'm uh, uh, happy about. Yeah, so a very, very much, uh, you know, appreciate everybody that remembers the history of, you know, they say, you know, you got to remember the history. You got to remember where you came from. And Dennis Duvall, a part of the Syracuse Orange men's basketball history. We just saw two jerseys get retired and put up in the rafters. Uh, J- Jerry McNamara, number three, and number one, Hakeem Warwick, both from the 2003 National Championship team. They joined number 15, Carmelo Anthony, from that team as well. Your jersey, Dennis, is up there in the rafters too. Number 22 is up there. And uh, the picture that we have here on YouTube and Facebook.com, both backslash wake up call DT, is of that ceremonious day where number 22 went up into the rafters forever. What can you say about being a part of such a small group in Syracuse history? Now that Hakeem Warwick and Jerry McNamara have joined you, what it's like to be one of the jerseys that every time you go into the dome and you look up there, that Dennis Duvall is hanging there? Well, you know, obviously it's a great feeling. And and, uh, with that feeling, you know, it's an honor um, to be among uh, we, we consider and, and the community considers um, some of the best players in the history of uh, 
Syracuse University basketball. I think that's the biggest honor that you represent that um, by your jersey being hanging up there. So it, it is an extreme honor. Um, I'm sure Jerry and and, uh, and the team feel the same way in terms of that. Um, I was at the ceremony um, Friday night watching the game at the Tan Auditorium, the Veterans Auditorium, and I was also at the game uh, witnessing that. You know, and, and what what are your words for Jerry McNamara and Hakeem Warwick now that they're a part of this very special uh, group the that's that has their jerseys up inside of the dome? What would you like to say to these gentlemen as part of that group as well? Uh, first of all, welcome to the club. <laughs> that's the first thing. Um, it's a special uh, club. Uh, both both of them are uh, good and great human beings. Um, and they, they recognize the fact that being there, what it, what it carries with it. Um, both of them understand that, um, from a, a long-term view in terms of the future and what they represent, but it's also about the Arns family and the fact that, um, we've all come through that program. So, um, I'm sure my words to them is nothing more than the fact that, you know, we're all family. Um, whether our jerseys are up there or not, but the fact that they are um, highlights a little bit, uh, a bigger part maybe we have played in, in that process and, and that um, history. I'm going to ask you a, a personal question here that, that forces you to reflect upon yourself. Dennis, why do you feel like your jersey is one of those jerseys up there? Well, um, I didn't make that decision. Uh, history makes those decisions. I think that the fact that um, – you know, things that I did when I was in college, um, I was a two-time All-American. I was a first-team All-American uh, my senior year. I was also an academic All-American. I think those things uh, would help qualify me for, uh, uh, for for being there. There would be some of the things. Um, choices were made by somebody else, but uh, I think they looked at my overall career at, at Syracuse and what I did while I was there and deemed that that would be necessary for uh, those accomplishments would have been necessary for uh, for me to be there along with others that had those same uh, accomplishments. Speaking here with Dennis Duval in tourney time talk on Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora, Syracuse Orange men's basketball alumni with me all throughout championship week here in the postseason of college basketball every year. We have this week dedicated to Syracuse Orange men's basketball alumni. And if you listen to the show, Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora throughout the year, we have Syracuse Orange alumni on all the time. So it is always an honor and a privilege, of course, during tourney time as well. Dennis, in the same respect of me asking why you feel you're up there, are there some names that you're surprised are not up there in the rafters yet? Well, um, there's always names that could be there. Um, when I say that, uh, it took uh, a while for mine to get there. So it's a, it's a matter of patience. And when I say that, I mean, those that might not be there now, and I don't want to call those names out specifically, I think in due time they will be. Um, if you look at um, uh, the history of uh, how it was done and how things are done, just think about this. It was 20 years ago that they won the national championship in there and that they're Seasons have been over for a good period of time, you know, a lot of time. So it does take time. Um, and I think it's uh, appropriate that they're there. But it's not something that happens uh, overnight. Uh, it's something that, for me, you know, it was a, a good period of time. But you know what? You 
from my perspective, I always knew what I did in college and I wasn't worried about it going away. Uh, history is what it is. And um, it doesn't, uh, it just shows uh, people that what happened in the past and someone's going to evaluate that in the future for others to be put up there, um, whether it be this year, next year, or years to come. Dennis Duvall here speaking on the Jersey retirement for himself, Hakeem Work, as well as Jerry McNamara and what's to come for the future. To look at the fact that uh, Dennis and Chris Joseph said it right before you came on here, I said, why is the brotherhood so strong at Syracuse? His response, because we all had the same coach. What are your thoughts on the brotherhood at Syracuse? And does it become such a strong, close-knit family that spans decades because you all have a very unique common denominator, which is Jim Behan. Well, the common denominator is Jim, but uh, it's not only Jim. Um, it's all the rest of us, too. Jim, Jim was a major part of that. Jim wasn't my head coach. Jim was my position coach when I was in college. Yeah. Um, but there was a closeness. He was, he was my coach in terms of my position. But the fact that, you know, Jim played – was in the same role as the rest of us. Jim was a player there. He was part of that Orange family when it all started. I mean, it started long before um, I was there, and it started before Jim was there. But the fact of the matter, Jim was a major, major influence on the way the program grew over the years. But we're all part of it. And I think Jim recognizes that. I mean, for all those guys that didn't specifically play for, for him, uh, he is always – you know, welcomed us and welcomed me and others uh, into the, you know, into this orange family and kept that going. I think that's the most important part. And I think uh, that we realize what history is. We realize the place that all of us played and the responsibilities we had as orange men when we played to represent that team and that university. You know, Dennis, like you said, uh, Jim wasn't your head coach. Roy Danforth was, but you had uh, Jim as a as a position coach. How would you describe him back then as as an assistant? <laughs> uh, like most coaches, there uh, was a pain, but it was a pain for a reason. You know, he got you. He got you to do what you needed to do. Uh, he's tough, and um, I knew it back then. I knew he was going to be tough as a head coach. But um, things in life don't come easy. Um, and motivation sometimes, you know, everybody gets motivated differently. Um, there's a lot at stake. Um, when people see your talent and they see maybe that they can get more out of your talent and you can get more out of your talent, it takes a lot to sometimes to motivate people uh, to do more than what is expected of them. Coaching is not easy. Um, everyone, you know, there's a lot of us, you know, there's a lot of people that go to games that think they can coach. But I tell you, you sit on a bench, you know, the responsibility for 11 to 12 different players with different personalities, different family backgrounds, different coming from different um, parts of the country. And you got to bring all of that together and you got to oversee all that on a daily basis and you have to be successful. I, well, I say to them, try it sometimes. I try to coach my kids. Uh, 12-year-old basketball team. I had more problems with the parents than I did the kids. But yeah. the fact of the matter, it's just, it's just not that easy. It's just not that easy. And I respect all coaches, whatever sport it is, I respect them all for the hard work it is. It takes to become one thing, to be able to do it, and secondly, to be successful at the level that Jim has been. Yeah, you know, and it, it, back then, I, I know obviously you're a student athlete, 
and you know you're young and and you know going about your life on and off the court did you as a position coach with Jim Beheim did you see head coach in him like you said he was a pain but it was worth it could you see the the head coach in him or is or is that not something that you saw at the time well yeah i could and and i say you know i'm qualified when i say about his pain i i mean that good coaches um create an environment for you to succeed but it isn't always comfortable and it doesn't always have to be comfortable to learn so um a lot of times when we had timeouts um during a game and my coach was saying one thing i would always look over to behind you know before i go on the floor because sometimes there were plays that were called and i was saying to myself man we haven't run that all night why why, why not you know what i mean and he would just look at me and say run the play go through what you're supposed to go through and then the next day we'd have discussions on it you know what i mean why it worked why it didn't work you know and, and what my recommendations were relative to that night and that circumstance and to me that that's one way of being a coach but on the same token he's not just telling he's listening um i, I don't know what he does now i'm not sitting in that locker room so uh, i'm sure he does a lot of a lot of things that uh uh, he's been consistent over the years out uh, of things. But like I said, learning doesn't have to be comfortable all the time. Um, it doesn't have to be um, – coaching doesn't have to be the hand around your arm, you know, around your back and hugging you. It just, that's probably works, and, uh, especially at that level. Yeah, no, and I love that, you know, because <clears throat> we need that. And I think this world – in a way has kind of forgotten that, right? You can't, you can't just lullaby people into becoming better people. You have to have that tough love and you got to push them. And, you know, so you look at Jim Beheim, 47 years, like you said, he obviously he was a player. He was position coach for you, took over a couple of years after you finished up at Syracuse. And now 47 years later, this man has, he is the only person to do what he's done at one school, over 1,100 wins, final fours in multiple decades, a national championship. He is one of four coaches, and my apologies to Roy Williams here that I had mentioned before, one of four coaches that has one losing season or less in their entire tenure. Roy Williams, Dean Smith, John Wooden, who had zero, and Jim Beheim. So... Looking at that, Dennis, we live in a world today where many people over the last couple of years, especially, I mean, I've witnessed it for years and so have you, but it seems like this year and last year, there has been a mass influx of people screaming for Jim Beheim to leave. How do you assess everything he's done? And yet here we are with people saying, yeah, we don't want it anymore. Well, that's the opinion. Doesn't mean it's right. I mean, that's their opinion. Um, I, I think that Jim has earned uh, the respect that uh, um, to um, coach, and I'm sure I'm sure there will be a period of time where he'll make that decision collectively. Uh, I'm sure with the university in a way that is appropriate for him. But if I was him, and I, let's put myself in that position, if someone was asking me about my retirement. I'd be offended about it, especially while I'm actively involved in it. Yeah. I mean, just like now in my job right now, someone was asking you about your retirement. When are you retiring? They're basically saying, that, you know, whether it's a reporter, whether it's somebody, uh, it doesn't matter who it is. Some, you know, 
that that could be offensive to people, especially when you're trying to work as hard as you are now as you were when you started. Yeah. So um, I think to to look at from Jim's perspective, um, it would be annoying to me yeah. um, the fact that there is a, a sentiment among certain fans that like to see him gone. That's understandable. Uh, doesn't mean I agree with it. Um, I don't personally agree with it. I think that there, there's a time and place for everything. And I think the fact that what, what he has contributed to the Syracuse basketball program, what he has contributed to the university, and what he has contributed to this community as a whole between him and his wife and the things that they've done from a philosophic perspective, I think um, give, him, give him that um, time. I'm sure he'll make the appropriate decision when he when it when it comes, but um, you know why why get in a position to force him out the door? I'm sure between him and the university, they collectively will figure this out, um, and um, we'll go from there. But the fact that when he does leave, he's one of the greatest. Yeah, and I and going off of your point that you just made, Dennis, I posted this yesterday uh, early in the morning because I felt the need to. So I'm going to read everything that I said, and, and a lot of it intertwines with what you said, but I'd love to get your thoughts on it. It says, <clears throat> these are my words yesterday morning. Uh, well, I've said, those, I've said them before, but here's a concise look at my words. No matter what Jim Beheim does, I want to take a minute to ask you if you'd like someone to come to your job and ask you daily and yearly when you're going to retire and talk about you nonstop for decades. How would you respond to someone constantly asking you to leave your job? I went on to say after that, the reality is Jim Beheim is a prisoner of his own success. He created the standard for Syracuse men's basketball, which in my opinion is 20 plus wins and a sweet 16 or bust every year. If he doesn't get the team there, he's a failure to some because he didn't hit the level he created. But what would Syracuse fans have known as a quote-unquote good season if they didn't have them? What happens if and when the next coach doesn't hit the standard of the man you can't wait to get rid of? Your thoughts? Well, first of all, my thoughts of this, that, you know, being a former player um, and, and not wanting to ever lose uh, anytime you step on the floor, you have to understand the Syracuse community as a whole. We're tough, you know, this is a different fan base. This is from the rest of the country. And we if you don't acknowledge that first, then you don't understand Syracuse. If you're not winning, they're not there. It's just as simple as that. And, and they have to, all the fans have to look in the mirror and acknowledge that. We're tough. We're different than most places, you know. I, I've said this before in the air, and, and I don't mind repeating this because it's part of history. I lost one home game in four years of college. And that game was an overtime game to Connecticut. And you know what? We got booed when we came off the floor that night. I'll never forget that. But, but you know what? I moved on from it because we had to keep playing. We're tough. And sometimes for the wrong reasons. But we are who we are. So, you know, we have to look in the mirror as fans sometimes and think, uh, you know, are, are we satisfied with what we have? Oh, we never satisfied. So, um, you know, winning is great. But it's, it's uh, being a fan is, is more than just going to the games that you win. Being a fan sometimes is supporting the teams even when they're down, supporting the same way when they're up as, as you do when they're down. You know, and sometimes, you know, rest, a lot of fans don't want to do that. And that's their choice. Uh, I personally, when I go to games, 
I hear a lot of things that I don't want to hear from the fan bases, but I have to accept that. You know, we're all experts when we're sitting in that seat during that game. But if you had to sit on that bench, it'd be a different story. And sometimes we need to think about that when we're critical of the things that are happening in a game. And remember, it's a game. Yeah, you know, and I appreciate that. And, and thank you for that. I mean, it is true. You know, I mean, this is my hometown. And I've, you know, I've been in the Dome where Trevor Cooney was booed more than he could have gotten booed at Cameron Indoor. And, you know, I, I mean... And I've and I've said to fans, there to me, there's a difference between fans and fanatics. Now, fans will be they can be upset, they can constructively criticize, but they'll always love you. Win, lose, or draw, they'll stand up, they'll clap for you, they'll try and find the silver lining. Fanatics go to games because their wife hates them, and they got out of the house for two hours, and they're screaming at Jim Beheim because they can't scream at their wife. So. You know, that is my feeling between fans and fanatics, internet trolls, people that boo the person that misses the half court shot in the dome, people that like, you know, boo kids, throw snow at Santa Claus, you know, that type of stuff. If you are at a game and a fan is doing a free throw challenge and he misses all of them short and you boo him, you should be ashamed of yourself. If you're at a game and it's your home team and your home coach and your home players and you boo them, you should be ashamed of yourself. Now, if the team, if Syracuse got in a giant fight with UConn and guys were throwing punches and you booed Syracuse like, guys, you need to be better than that, I understand that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about an actual game play. You don't boo your coach. You don't boo your team. You don't boo your student athletes. You don't boo the kid that's trying to do the challenge on the court during a two-minute break. So to me, there's certain things that shouldn't happen, and that's the difference between fans and fanatics. I've met fans that are frustrated with the 2-3 zone, but they respect Jim Beheim and they want the team to win. And I've met fans that would set their hair on fire and stand outside of Jim Beheim's house and tell him, why can't you put the fire out that's on my head? So, I mean, there's, there's, there's two different types of people. I think fanatics should stay in a bunker in their basement and leave everybody alone. And I think fans should show up. But, you know, I, I find it hard, Dennis, to, to you know, fathom enduring a, a hometown crowd booing you. But you said you experienced that as well. Yeah. And, and let's, let's just talk about the 2-3 zone. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Also, most most fans don't even know how it works. They have a clue. All they do is they see and hear what somebody's talking about. They don't understand conceptually what it is and, and, and how it works. It's basically a man-to-man zone. It's basically man-to-man in a zone concept with backfills on the backside, just like you would do in a man-to-man. Uh, and without, you know, the problem that they've had recently is that they haven't been playing good defense. Jim has said that many a times. Now, you take last game, you take Wake. The weekend, they play tremendous defense. They got back in transition. These are all things, whether you're playing man-to-man or you're playing zone, that have to take place in order you to be successful. Being an expert on the 2-3 zones, there are people all over the country that have copied Jim Beheim's concept in the zone, not only in college basketball, but in, in professional basketball. They've implemented that 2-3 zone based upon Jim's knowledge 
and basically seeking him out to that. So if it doesn't work and it's not good and you're tired of seeing it, that's fine. But you know, there's a lot of plays that are called. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of identities that teams have based upon their coach, and they all have it. Either you accept them or you don't. But the fact of the matter um, is there's a lot of games that have been won when that 2-3 zone. And the, and the strategic part of it is when you get up in, in points, you might not uh, – it's harder to come back off a zone. You have to make shots. If I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose from people shooting from the outside. Not inside, not you know, not driving to the basket. So it puts a lot of pressure on, on the offense to to have to make shots. Um, but you know, a lot of teams never get used to playing against it. So I, you know, I, we had it when I was in school uh, when Danforth was the coach. We did a lot of pressing also with that. We had a different type of team, so uh, we had a smaller team. Uh, we got up and down the floor a little bit different on the transition, and we we put pressure uh, differently. So. Um, to the experts that are out there that don't like the two, three zone. All I can tell you is this, is that um, you got to do what works. You got to do what you know how to do. And you, and you recruit players based upon how you want to play. It's just that simple. Well, the thing is, you know, Dennis, I mean, the two, three zone, which, I mean, the zone uh, two, three, as opposed to a three, two, you know, and, and I've said this before, you know, I've played two, three, three, two, two, one, two, box and one, man to man. I played all different defenses and being five foot eight, you know, I was always at the top. And most of the time, unless I had a coach that decided I was a power forward to which I said, I'm not, but thank you. And, uh, but you know, usually on the top of the zone, I mean, I know a zone is set up for a two, three zone is set up for teams that typically don't shoot well from three point range, knowing that teams shoot so well now and, that everybody's shooting, centers are shooting, power forwards are shooting, and they'll shoot between the three-point line and half court. They don't even care at this point. Do you think that Jim has to evolve and look at some things differently now because the game has evolved? Well, to answer your question, that's the best shooters in the world are in the NBA, correct? I mean, let's just let's just take that for granted. The best shooters in basketball right now are in the NBA, and they play zone. So if they can do it, why can't we? The other side of it is this. I think Jim has made some adjustments. But, you know, in terms of what happens on the floor, it's about executing. It's about that team or those personnel on the floor. If you're executing properly, most of the time you can defend against those things. Usually it's because of poor execution on whether you're playing man-to-man or you're playing zone. So um, the fact that, yeah, teams have better shooters, teams are shooting from the outside, the forwards and the centers are shooting, but that's throughout basketball at all levels. you got kids in junior high taking three-pointers. you got kids that shouldn't be taking them, taking them. So that's the world we live in, is three-pointing. The zone isn't obsolete just because people um, have been able to shoot further from out. They've used that, too, to defend that because you can pick them up further out. So the zone can be pushed out a little bit further. So there has been some, you know, to say that Jim Jim needs to adjust, I think Jim has adjusted. But it's a matter of execution for the people that are on the floor sometimes. You've got to pick that guy up. You've got to recognize who's where in those positions, and you have to get out on it. Sometimes that doesn't happen. I mean, I look at the game maybe a little bit differently, you know, um, Going as it's moving and going along than others. I, I know I can see when someone gets the shot and is repeatedly getting that shot. Um, 
someone is not getting out on them. Someone is not moving when they're supposed to be moving. So uh, that's the causation for that for those breakdowns in, in, in the defense. So I look at it a little bit. It'd be the same if they were guarding them on man to man. If they're not moving their feet, they're not moving along. Same thing can happen. So it's just a matter of uh, you know what you how you want to look at it. Back coming from Dennis Duvall here on Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora, where sports meets life. Dennis, a, a final point here. Words of advice to the current Syracuse team. They've gone through this season with seven new faces, six true freshmen, and transfer Munir Hema. Benny Williams has been asked to do more this season. Joe Girard is back in his normal position of shooting guard. There's been a lot of changes. There's been more different than similar from last season to this season. And when I was asked the question, and I mentioned this earlier, when I was asked the question going into the season of, you know, what do you think about Syracuse? How good are they going to be? I said, nobody can answer that question with full truth. And people look at you and I said, there's no way that anybody can sit here and tell you that seven true, that six true freshmen and a transfer are going to come in and do any of this. Most of them have never played together before. Six of them have never played a college basketball game. Munir Hema is coming on to a different team, and Joe is going to a position that he used to play at, so he's got to shift there. Benny's got more that he's being asked to do. There's no way that anybody can come to you and tell you on paper what this team is going to look like because how could you possibly know with so many new variables on the team? So with that being said, do you agree or disagree that, that this was going into the season, there was really no true way to assess them until they played? And then secondly, what are your thoughts on the team right now? Well, my thought on the team, uh, well, certainly I agree with the, uh, of, of your uh, perception of, of how this team was going to be this year. It, it was going to be difficult to begin with. Um, uh, it's not an easy uh, situation when you got all new players, young players to come in and even understand, you know, um, what happens in the course of a season to begin with. The second thing is, is that right now they're playing for pride, and and that was demonstrated to me the other night at the uh, at the weight game. Th- those guys played with pride, and um, they didn't give up. They were, you know, they're aggressive. But, you know, throughout the season, I, I didn't see any give up on them. Yeah, they lost some games. They lost some games. Young teams lose games. Long, young teams make mistakes down the stretch. And, and that happens. That's why they don't win a lot of games. But the fact of the matter is, I think next year they'll be even better. I think it takes time. I think Jim knew. I mean, he, he's never someone to, to uh, give you a forecast of how good the season is going to be to begin with. But the expectation, like you said, shouldn't have been there that they were going to be this great team. Um, and I think it takes a while to adjust. It takes a while to understand the system and, and to be uh, comfortable in it. Um, but the most thing that I saw the other night when I was at the game, and I've been watching the games, is that they played with pride. And I think that going, you know, ending their season is to play for the pride of your, your teammates and, and for the pride of the university and the school. And play as hard as you can, you know what I mean, to, to uh, end your season in a positive note going to next year, which is just as important as this year. Um, I think if people understand that and accept that as, as fans, they'll appreciate what they did this year even more. Um, and I think that um, the future holds a different story for them. But um, I, I like what I saw, and, uh, and I do appreciate how they played. 
Yep, they're coming from Dennis Duvall here as this team has new life in a new season as we step into championship week in the ACC tournament. I am down here in Greensboro, North Carolina, covering 15 schools in five days. No matter what happens, I'll be here with you. And no matter what happens, the Syracuse Orange basketball alumni will be as well. Dennis, as always, I appreciate your time. I'm happy that your jersey is up there in the rafters, and I'm happy to uh, to have you on the show as we always do, and and to call you a friend. So thank you for always answering my phone calls and being there, and and thank you for everything that you bring to the table. I really do appreciate you, and I appreciate the way you break down the game. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity to speak to the fans and uh, go Cubs. And coming from Dennis Duvall. Thank you, sir. I'll talk with you soon. Yeah. Take care.